Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode, the pilot episode of Booze, Booms and Busts with myself, Boaz Shoshan, and my good friend and colleague, Sam Volkering. Hey. Now, uh, Sam and I sort of first, uh, first got onto this idea uh, when we were discussing pubs uh, <laughs> and beer at the same time as discussing investing. And uh, we realized that there was maybe something of a niche to be found with uh, discussing you know, good beer, uh, and uh, tasting new beers at the same time as discussing markets and investing and all manner of other things. So we decided we'd, we'd, uh, we'd give this one a shot. Sam, thank you very much for joining me. Which, uh, which beer do you think we should start with today? Uh, I mean, where, where do you start really when it comes to, to beer? We've, we've got, I remember when we, we came up with this wonderful idea because, you know, there aren't enough podcasts in the world right now, Boaz. And no, and, no. And, we really, we really needed to add to the pool of things that people can just spend a lot of time doing. So, yeah, combining two of the things that we both love most, being beer uh, and being talking uh, a bit of crap, basically, about the markets. So where do we start? Well, we got, I've got three here. Now, for people that are hopefully <laughs> tuning into this, uh, there's been some conjecture because one of these, the, it's called A Gentle Nod to Welcome Visitors, uh, which is a deep and intense modern barley wine. And it is a 9% ABV, 9%. Now, I want to start there. But I don't know, Boaz. I think you've got, you've got a different idea on that. Well, yeah. I mean, I think starting maybe with the 9% one may, I don't know, it may, uh, it may dull some of the senses slightly too early. <laughs> But, uh, you know, as this is our inaugural episode, I mean, we really should start as we mean to continue. So, uh, yeah, let's, get, let's give it a go. So this is uh, a modern barley wine. I don't know what that, how it's modern and different from normal barley wines, but a gentle nod to welcome visitors. And this is made by Cloudwater. Uh, Cloudwater is very, uh, they're pretty prolific throughout the UK now, and they do some very interesting stuff. I've never had a barley wine from them before, so let's, uh, let's give this one a go. I'm not going to lie. I've never had a barley wine, I don't think, full stop. Oh, mate, you've not lived. They're, uh, they're 10 out of 10. I think they're probably my favorite, apart from maybe a Braggot, they're probably my favorite form of beer. Well, it looks like Braggot's on the next episode then because that is a word that sounds offensive, but uh, it sounds, obviously you can drink it, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, they're quite something. It's, uh, a Braggot's a bit like, because I, th- I believe they use honey uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the process of brewing it. So it's a bit like, a bit like a barley wine, but slightly thinner and slightly sweeter. Uh, but they're, right. they're kind of hard to come by as well. But anyway, let's... Uh, I'm giving this an initial test. Let's, let's give this a sip. Mm. Not ideal for a podcast when to, the two people talking are actually drinking. But no, I think, um, I, I think it's a good enough idea. I'm going to have uh, to drink more of that while we speak so I can get an idea of the taste on it. Yeah. This is actually the first time I've ever been uh, recorded on a podcast while under the influence of alcohol. So uh, it'll be quite interesting to see how this, uh, how this develops. Yeah, I'd, I'd think that by the end of this, um, we get far more entertaining and far funnier, at least if not to ourselves. Quite, quite. I think this tastes actually really good, man. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, this is a really good barley wine. It tastes very, very sweet. Kind it of, does uh, taste sweet. sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's but, a bit uh, like the kind of uh, beer you'd probably have with a dessert. It's, it's a bit like your dessert wines. Yeah, 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 I'd agree with that. It doesn't taste 9% to me. Um, no. I would, 
Tastes more like maybe seven, maybe seven percent. But then again, that's that's probably the, the the thing I like about this is that you could start drinking a couple of these after you've just tucked into a massive steak or something like that, and the uh, lemon cheesecake slides out, and I just go, I'll have a modern barley wine, thanks. And then yeah. all of a sudden, two modern barley wines later, and you're like, I'll have four more modern barley wines, please. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, yeah. This probably would be a probably better better accompanied with uh, something something very filling, if uh, especially if you didn't want it to uh, hit you in the head real fast. Yeah, and hey, while we're on this, um, we are not carrying any sponsorships for this show. I might point out this is all off our own back. But I do want to shout out to uh, where we got these beers from, which was Ghost Whale, uh, which Ooh, actually yeah. Boaz, you got me onto, and so you're a uh, Scotsman down in London and I'm an Aussie up in the West Midlands and we're drinking <laughs> beers from all over the UK. But uh, yeah, Ghost Whale, I ordered online and they, they shipped them up here pretty quick. So thanks Ghost Whale for getting these bad boys out to us. Um, yeah, they're a winner, especially with all yeah. the weird stuff going on with uh, deliveries at the moment and how long stuff takes to, uh, to get shipped around. It was incredibly prompt yeah uh, with uh, with us receiving him also well on that let's well let's maybe talk about some of the other things that we thought we would on this uh booze booms and busts uh podcast is the weird stuff that's going on because oh man there is some weird stuff going on in the markets in the world uh on uk tv and bbc and netflix uh a lot of crazy stuff i think the hashtag where should we start and world got mad was trending today Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Where to begin? I think there's um, there's actually one of the uh, one of our beers uh, which we which we've yet to come onto, which is called Wipeout. I think is uh, maybe quite relevant, especially this week, considering oh, yeah. some of the uh, some of the market action uh, that we we saw over the last uh, last just last couple of days. Actually, I think um, the, there was one uh, folk on one fellow on Twitter who would put on a. Uh, a screenshot that somebody had posted on a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets. Now, for those <laughs> listening, uh, Wall Street Bets is sort of the uh, retail investors' uh, paradise when it comes to people discussing their stories of how they've made vast amounts of money, money as an amateur trading the markets. Uh, and it's also uh, where you know, retail investors share ideas and the like. And Wall Street Bets has managed to sort of... Uh, it's become the sort of the go-to place, especially in the States, uh, for folks who want to get into trading and the like. And of course, that's become very popular uh, now that everyone's on lockdown and they can't bet on sports anymore. Anyway, some fella had posted on Wall Street Bets what, uh, what happened to his trading account over 24 hours. And uh, uh, just to, uh, to well, what, what was left in his account was $3,000. Uh, but 24 hours previously, it had been $1.2 million. <laughs> And uh, it does illustrate the kind of uh, the kind of whipsaw action that we've seen over the last uh, couple of days, where we just had this incredible sugar rush, uh, and then at the end of it, uh, you know, it was like a, a like a sudden sudden hangover uh, suddenly hit. I mean, you've got to ask yourself at that point, like at what point when you go from what was it, one point three million? Did you say? Um, yeah, I believe it's one point three. What, at what point do you say to yourself, you know what? That's probably enough. I mean, when you get down to hundred grand, do you go? You know what? It's probably not worth it from here on in. At what point does, does do you get to just over three thousand and say, actually, now is probably enough? Yeah, uh, now is where I should lick my wounds and then yeah. go on to Reddit. To yeah, then... let's cut my losses at three grand, maybe instead of fifty, hundred, two fifty. 
Quite. I mean, that's that's quite. silly money. But it's like you know. So there's the the inverse to that with uh, the so-called Robin Hood rally and um, millennials. Or this is what this is what the old rich white guys on Wall Street uh, are saying is that it's the millennials buying stocks that are pushing the rally that was before the wipeout over the last two days. But uh, you know the the the, the bankrupt boom which um, has sort of started to peter out. But there's the inverse, right? It's, 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 this crazy, it's this crazy market. And do you know what it reminds me of, actually? It reminds me of when, I think it was about December, December 2017, that's right. And uh, I went to a wedding of a friend, a whole bunch of people I didn't know. And um, a few guys caught wind that I was into crypto. And... <laughs> Um, a, a chat for another podcast, perhaps. But mm. uh, before before I knew it, I was being saddled up at the bar with a bunch of dudes telling me about all these great hot crypto stock recommendations that they had. I was like, oh yeah, so what do you do? And one of them uh, was a mechanic. And one of them was a, a gym instructor. And uh, it was... It was an eye-opening event because, you know, it was it was just that time when everybody was just making crazy profits uh in a market that was just just didn't make sense and that's exactly what the stock market feels like right now it's just that there's these crazy stories of of buying bankrupt stocks and dudes getting wiped out of 1.3 million i shouldn't laugh that's that's horrible for him (laughs) but still uh you know and it's just this great you know when when everyone's uh, saying you know got these hot tips like buy hertz or, or Chesapeake Energy, and you, you know they're they're effectively bankrupt. You kind of got to look at the market and go, uh, really, that's 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 time to tap out. And the last couple of days has kind of proved that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, it is quite interesting when you've got that speculative fervor that has just arrived uh, and has been characterized so well with uh, you know you know the the kids who've been buying Tesla calls. Uh, and making loads and loads of money, you know, it really does, uh, it really does bring back some of those memories from that 2017 boot. Makes me wonder though, why is it that this has gone to the stock market and not back to crypto, which was something that kids were already familiar with? I mean, this kind of speculative frenzy lends itself. I mean, crypto, the crypto boom occurred when the stock market was really zooming, like the, everything around the world was zooming. Like the, if you just take a look at the MSCI uh, World Index, just the stocks generally at the beginning and end of 2017, it is a perfect, well, nearly perfect uh, straight line from the bottom left to the top right. Like you could almost have drawn it with a set square and it begins and ends almost perfectly within that year. And it was during that year when stocks were going up, that, that was when you got this big crypto frenzy. Maybe it's because stocks haven't been doing so well that the, the, the speculative spirit hasn't returned to crypto in the same way it did. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, actually. That's a, that's a bloody good question. Um, yeah, I mean, because like with, with the thing with crypto, I mean, the thing with stocks as well is maybe they're just both so cyclical that, that investors and punters are just happy to jump between whichever is going to make them the most money fastest, right? I mean, when you yeah, look guess. at what was happening in the stock market uh, in mid-March, I mean, yeah, it, there's some reasonable justification because of the economic shutdowns. And, you know, there's still a lot of stories to play out with how economies are traveling and where the market is in relation to that. But at mid-March, I mean, you just had to look at the market and go, right, I'm a long-term investor. 
what am I going to buy? It's not, it's not a matter of, am I going to buy? Or if I'm going to buy, it's just, what am I going to buy? Because there are just so many stocks trading at massive discounts that just you knew weren't going to stay down there for long. And I think what's different this time, as opposed to something like 2008, 2009, is the accessibility. So yeah, the, the whole idea of this Robin Hood rally um, is somewhat true because it provides access to the market that just didn't, didn't occur before, right? In 2008 and 2009, so I was, I was doing actually some research, um, further research on 5G um, over the last week. And, you know, 4G technology didn't debut until December 2009. So during the 2008 crash, we were still running on 3G networks. You know, most people, right. if you were buying stocks, you were buying on a desktop through your online broker. Um, now it's just on your, like I was playing golf yesterday evening and I got a notification on my phone from free trade saying that 90 new stocks had been added to their list of investable stocks. You know, that kind of stuff wasn't happening in 2008 and 2009. I could have literally teed off on the ninth, uh, which is a beautiful path for the dog legs round to the left. You just go over the trees. It's a magnificent. Oh, I could have smashed one down there, which I did. And, uh, and just traded some stocks on my way up to the hole. I mean, it's that easy. And I think that's the real difference. Mm -hmm that we're seeing this time around. And it, yeah, you know, I don't see it as a bad thing, but man, you've got to question some of the, some of the, some of the moves and trades that are being made out there. Like you said, derivatives and that it's a little bit bonkers, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, maybe one of the, maybe one of the reasons why we've seen so much attracted to the stock market is because people have moved from what was the riskiest thing with crypto uh, and then maybe the accessibility to options, which are in some ways even riskier and even more speculative, yeah. uh, they're even more accessible now. So they're going to equity derivatives instead of crypto, and that is having an influence on the equity market. There was, yeah. um, it's a risk play thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 well, it's just gambling. I mean, it's just people wanting it to, just, just thirsty, thirsty for that kind of you know, sudden, sudden, you know, sudden feeling of getting minted. But it, investments have always been gambling. And, and so is so is gambling being so well, yeah i mean there's it's always just, an element of, of um calculated risk taking that you could say is exactly. pretty much in, in everyday life everyone yeah. everyone there's always some kind of calculated risk yeah it's like where people I, I was actually thinking about this the other day i think the um, it is often investment banking uh, and the trading uh, divisions of investment banks it's always uh, detractors always style it as gambling and a casino um, but when you think about it, just the act, like you could, you could put the everyday act of the most basic forms of banking in that, in that light as well. You know, extending a loan to somebody for, uh, to begin a business, uh, giving somebody, lending money, money to somebody for a more, as a mortgage, all of that could be described as a form of gambling by the bank in that they may, not, that they may lose the money. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, that's still gambling. It's just the, the risk has been turned down. And I, I take exception to the idea that it's always, you know, well, all, all that this trading is doing is a form of gambling. Yes, it's a form of speculation. Yes, it's a form of, uh, you know, trying to make money through risk. But it's, if you just call it gambling, I think it simplifies it uh, a little too much. Yeah, fair point. Uh, what, one thing I was, uh, was going to ask, if you, have you, well, I wonder whether or not you saw this. There was the, um, you know, the, uh, quite a lot was made of this. And this, in fact, I think this was actually before the Wu flu actually hit. <laughs> the, was, was, the Kung flu, I believe, was the term uh, yeah, going around I, at one point. 
quite and uh, or my my personal favorite shinny the flu you know just uh, just to really trigger the commies uh, is my, my personal favorite for this but there was one um, before you know before the Wuflu crisis hit there was Jesse Felder uh, who was you know very well known within the investment space and within sort of the investment commentary space made uh, a very, wrote a lot and uh, spoke quite a lot on the phenomenon of the of the retail investor and the retail investors speculative spirit and there was one bit he highlighted highlighted of this which was where in the wall street bets reddit group um effectively the community or at least large members of the community believed that they were controlling the market by buying enough calls on a certain company so if they were making so because they were they were forcing the dealers you know the uh, the actual you know, the options dealers who, who simply yep. want to buy and sell options and who um, don't want to make an implicit position in the market. They always want to be hedged. They just want to buy and sell, you know, make some of that money uh, on, on the transaction side. When enough people bought bullish calls on the stock, on Tesla, the dealers had to hedge that by buying the actual equity, which made the equity go. So the, it's sort of this, uh, this community, this retail investment community had realized that this that this took place and then believed that oh well we we control the market now we just need to buy enough calls on these stocks and we'll make the market move up you know it was a very and it it felt you know it's something that feels like well it's not just the dealers who impact the market you know there there is so much more going on here than simply yeah you know we control the market so you know this it's it felt like you know this is this is a ridiculous level of speculation uh, and the kind of craziness that it could uh, create I guess we're I guess that's what what we've really been seeing when it comes, yeah. when it comes to Hertz rallying, you know, over well over what a hundred percent. At one point, or, it was ten tenfold. It was literally it, it it had ten bagged from like its its bottom of forty cents to like over five dollars at, at one point. But you know what? Right. You know what's interesting about that as well. And I, I think I think I take offense to the way that the mainstream refers to people as retail investors. It, All right. I, I think that simplifies the intelligence of the people that are getting involved in these markets. So you're talking about, you know, basically organized strategies to move the market, which whether that's even legal or not, I don't know, but you know, Facebook, uh-huh. what Facebook groups are. And I think that people are far more sophisticated, especially, you know, if you can talk about some sort of coordinated, <laughs> effectively a coordinated market attack like that, that's pretty sophisticated stuff. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the people that, you know, that I, again, I use the generalized sort of term millennials, but talking about kids that are very tech savvy, um, that uh, know their way around, you know, uh, programming, how to build algorithms and things like that. So that they're actually quite more sophisticated in how they look at the market and invest in the market than people give them credit for it. It's not just, ah, oh, look, there's Tesla. They make electric cars. I'm going to buy that stock. Yes. And you know, some aspects that probably there's is probably right. a few of them that are, but yeah. Yeah, no doubt. But I think there's also a lot that are far more savvy. I used about, to be like that. I know that. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. You know, we all sort of had at one point, we, you know, invested in a company just because we kind of liked the cut of their, cut of their time, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> we can admit to it now because, you know, we've moved on to point. Um, we've, but I guess the other thing is, is, that, is that there'll be a lot of lessons learned from this. Like, so as we said, the last two days, as we're soon to move on to beer number two wipeout, uh, yep. the last couple of days has wiped out you know, some, some of those gains pretty seriously. Um, and they're great lessons to learn. Uh, whether they're, well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's well, not fun lesson to learn, but it's a good lesson to learn anyway, if you're, if you're pretty young in the market. Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, well, what would you, 
Well, well, I mean, there should be, I, I don't mean to be disparaging when I say retail investor. I mean, it's, it's simply, there aren't, you know, what I label- I think just the general the industry most, uses that phrase way too much. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like the official term within the finance industry to describe uh, investors who are not being advised to do anything. Yeah, it's, it's describing everyone that's, not, training, yeah. everyone that's not on Wall Street or that doesn't work for an investment bank or doesn't work for a hedge fund is a retail investor. It's like, that's a big chunk of um, investors that that's you're a lot of capital, pretty well yeah. dumbing down, which is so not the case. You know, we, you, we you get uh, emails and letters from um, subscribers uh, all the time. And they're far smarter than, than you know, what most, average, they're actually uh, yeah. far smarter than most of the people that work in the markets. Uh, and yet that would be classified as retail investors. And I just, I, I, I take- What do you think is a more, a more politically correct label then, if you, if you want to change it? Well, so if you ask me, I think this whole um, division between sophisticated and retail investors is a crock of shit. Um, I think it's just utter nonsense. And what it does is it's just a, it's just a mechanism designed to shut out a lot of people from investment opportunities. I think the best thing that regulators could do is to get rid of the sophisticated and retail investor um, designations. I think it is absolute garbage. Uh, and if they do that, um, you know, as long as companies are putting out the right information, that's all that matters. You know, you just want an investment product to have the right information and then people to take that and make their own decisions because people are far smarter than, than the regulator gives them credit for. And most retail investors are smarter than the sophisticated investors. Just because you're rich doesn't make you smart. Quite often, it makes you an idiot. But, you know, the, the, the regulator wants to make this, you know, delineation between the two. And I think it's a mistake. So, you know, I mean, I think there is, uh, I, mean, I definitely think there's, um, you know, there's a lot in what you say there. I guess it's the, I mean, if you, there are people who spent years just studying the intricacies of, uh, you know, various, you know, derivatives, for example, and, you know, studying various uh, ways of measuring things like convexity and they, uh, you know, they'll, they can tell you what all of the, uh, the Greek um, algebra, you know, for, for, you know, messing around in derivatives is when it comes to things like uh, omega and gamma and delta and theta. I still don't know what any of that stuff means. It's been a lifetime learning about markets and investment. I still don't know. I, can't, I still struggle to price a bond, man. I tell well, you. Well, that's, the, that's the thing. That's the, um, I think there, the, there is a delineation from people who study that and understand that and can imagine the derivative space as a volatility surface. And somebody is just like, this market's going up, so I'm going to buy calls. You know, I think <laughs> there is, I think there, there does need to be some kind of delineation between. Well, the, you need to be, there needs to be some way of you know describing what you know the 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 Greek algebra people are doing and what you know the the, the guy that just wants uh, well that just thinks a stock is going to go up is doing. You know. Yeah. See, I don't know if we do need that. I, I uh, I'm more I'm all for you know if we like the idea of free markets then let free investors freely invest into free markets if they're supposed to be so free. Oh sure. Oh yeah. Sure. I I'm just meaning like uh, well I mean we need to like <laughs> just in turn in terms of conversation if you're describing what's going on I mean I I don't mind sure. it being you know, sure. one kind of label or another. But anyway, is labels, that, I think it's labels, labels. You know quite. Let retail investors are gonna they're gonna revolt and they're gonna pull down statues. Of, of other retail investors that sit in the town square of retail investing. There's going to be an uprising. Against the yeah, CFA charter holders. They're going to yeah. tear down the statues yeah, of the CFA right. charter holders. I yeah. mean, you know, I'll tell you what, you know, with, with uh, all this uh, 
business about pulling down statues. You've got to think about the position for concrete and, and brass uh, producers, right? Because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I don't think there's going to be a whole bunch of new statues going up. And, uh, you know, a lot of these things are made from, from concrete, from brass. So, you know, maybe it's time to short the, the, the brass producers, you know, because, you know, it's the statue market. The ass is falling out of the statue market. Do you think, uh, what do you think about, is this not the, you know, the um, additive manufacturing sector's oh, opportunity wow, to go big unless people just 3D print yeah. life-size or bigger statues? What about if statues in town squares were interchangeable by households on a uh, semi-weekly basis so that nominated households within a catchment area could, uh, could have uh, their own statue 3D printed and put in place of uh, previous old uh, colonial <laughs> statues instead? You know, I, 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 have a, I have a slight inclination that, um, you know, there may be a lot of statues that, remarkably look like uh, cock and balls um, i mean like uh i think there could be an awful lot of mischief that, that, would, that would go on there that might even create even more mischief than we've already seen yeah yeah i think yeah it'd be an interesting way to to uh to see what the general public uh in general would approve as an acceptable statue yeah well i imagine it would change from county to county <laughs> Could you imagine as you just yeah. shift from the south up to up to the north and up into Scotland, just the the variety of statues that you'd end up with in 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 town squares? Quite, quite. We might be now, onto something. To, uh, no, beer number two, I believe. At this yes, point. no. So should we? I think we should. Should are we going to apply our beer rating system uh, to this? Is, so, yeah. in in the ilk of um, I guess investment grade bond investing. Um, I'm not sure if, if people listening are very familiar with it, but the the premium grade bonds are triple A rated, you know. And so, if you're triple A rated, you are the highest investment grade quality you can get. So we, we thought we might we might just stick with that because you know we we do talk about markets and investing and you know the economy and finance. So that's kind of our kind of our bag uh, in in conjunction with the beers here so mm. if, if the or, if we, or we can flip it around though of course as our uh, as, as, our, as our name is uh, booze booms and busts that is triple, triple b. b so triple b is a junk bond rating so in well, it's investment. one above junk it's one wow. above junk it is still investment grade but it is still the last junk. grade <laughs> if it gets derung if it gets derated from there then nobody uh, only people who are licensed to hold junk can uh, can hold it or in this you know case what? that's a good idea I think that's a good yeah. idea because uh, the investment world, as we are seeing play out in 2020, is a fair bit of it is junk itself. Um, the, the the global financial system is run by junk people, uh, and they are quite quickly turning the whole lot of it into junk. So let's flip that on its head, and let's say that the best beer rating we can give isn't junk, but triple B rating in the beer world is the yes. best bloody beer you can have. Yeah, <laughs> booze, booms, and busts rating is the uh, this is the yeah. gold standard the so gold standard. triple b is the is the best so yeah. and then going from double b to single b yeah we can make you pluses and minuses in there as well yeah what, and the absolute worst what would that be it's just well, single it have to be triple a right or or single a maybe or single a well, the, if, if the top investment grade bond is AAA, then surely our very worst beer that probably someone from Alcoholics Anonymous wouldn't even go near on a good day 
if if they were off the bandwagon. Uh, right. Maybe that's maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Why not? So yeah, the the uh, the suitable only well not not even suitable for Alcoholics Anonymous, I suppose, would there be would, is the AAA one. Yeah. All right. So, so from so from AAA to triple B, Sam, how would you rate a Ooh. gentleman? to welcome visitors by Clydewater Brew Company. You know what, that's tough one. So I don't think I could probably have more than just a couple of those because they're so sweet, but that's, that's super tasty. But it's, it's good, very yeah. niche, very specific when I think I'd want to have one. So it's definitely not junk, that's for sure. But I wouldn't say it's premium, premium quality either. I'm going to give this uh, in the scheme of it, I'm still going to give it a, I'm going to give it a double A actually. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that was, that was a very pleasant barley wine. Doesn't, uh, as barley wines go, it's very smooth. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't much of a, uh, a, you know, with it going down, it didn't, didn't taste like a 9%, did taste less than that. And Mm. in terms of the, uh, the flavor, very consistent all the way through when you swallowed it and everything, it was all very, very uniform. Uh, so I think I'll join you with that. I think a double A actually is, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a double A. No, no, sorry. I'd say that is a, for me, that would be a double B uh, going forward. I think oh, that's yes, a... Oh, yes, sorry, uh, a double B. I even got my own rating system wrong yeah. within a minute of starting the rating system. <laughs> sorry, a well, double we'll need, B, a double B. Well, yeah, we'll need, we'll need to make this uniform. <laughs> probably probably write it down. I would, I would give this a double B yeah. as the booze, booms and busts rating system goes. We need uh, to but be now far we more to, organized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think we'll, you know, uh, the more of these that we do, we'll be able to get... Uh, We'll be able to get more with it, more with the program, more more in sync with uh, with our own rating system. Yeah, and we'll uh, put these I mean, ratings up as well. We'll we'll eventually probably get to a point where we have some sort of website. By the way, we have a Twitter account. Uh, if you're if you're listening, where we will also put our ratings uh, of this. And the Twitter account is actually booze booms busts. That's it. Yeah, at booms booze busts. I'm just going to check that to make sure that's actually a Twitter Twitter name. Yeah, I think the uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, we we do have the have the logo and everything already. I mean, this is uh, you know we have we have uh, we have invested a, a little bit of the time so far in uh, in getting this all all set up. Uh, Sam, I think you've done uh, an excellent job with uh, getting getting the preliminaries done before we crack them open. Okay, here is our actual Twitter name. It is at beers booms busts. Uh, there you go. Uh, very yeah. good. I even made a logo. Very, very official. <laughs> All right. So I guess we should crack on to number two then as well, which is, as you said, the aptly titled Wipeout. Indeed, by Port Brewing Company. Laid back, hop forward IPA. Laid back. What now? When beer companies say, so I got a bit of an issue with boutique beer companies. Now I'm Australian, which means we are the land of goddamn boutique beer companies. Um, the, the, I think, I don't know if you've ever heard of a brewery called little creatures, but little creatures back in the day, they're, have, yeah. they're, they're basically a um, big brand now in Australia, but they were a boutique small brewery when they first launched and they really kicked off the boutique beer revolution in Australia. And now I remember I went to Australia in, um, to visit some family in January and I walked into a bottle shop and it took me so long to decide on what six pack to get because there were just so many beers. It was ridiculous how much choice there was. But the names of it, like I take great issue 
with the beers that are now determining uh, themselves as session beers. Now, if you're, a, if you're a long-term boozer like we both are, every <laughs> beer you drink is a session beer. You know, you can't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. can't just try and steal that niche from all the other beers in the world. Yeah, I mean, I guess that implies, a session beer implies that other beers cannot be drank in multiples, right? Correct. I mean, uh, so it assumes that someone just drinks, you know, what we've just had, a modern barley wine by itself and then doesn't drink anything else. The beer session ends with the one beer, which doesn't <laughs> seem very realistic when you think about it, right? I don't think anybody's ever just had a, a beer with the intention of just having one beer in the session. Really? Maybe if they were trying to, you know, really trying to cut back and that was, the, you know, they couldn't go cold turkey and they just had to have just one. That would be a... You know what? Experience. If anybody is actually listening to us today, I would <laughs> love you to get, reach out to us on our Twitter account at Beers Booms Busts and tell us if you've ever actually just had one single beer in a sitting because I'd be greatly surprised if that's the case. Now, there's plenty of times I've even... I remember I walked my dog, my little pug, Alonzo, uh, it was summer, I think it was last year, because we could actually go to the pub then. And we, I walked in, I was just taking him for a walk, happened to walk past the pub. I thought, you know what, I'm going to go in. And I'm just going to have one beer. And do you think I had just one beer, Boaz? Unlikely. Unlikely. No. It Sacrilege. Was, it, it was two. It was two. Still not, you know, still not, not, not like seven, but it was definitely more than one. So, I don't know, mm. session beers, I'm not so sure. So, tell me what you think about the wipeout while I try and have some. Oh, yeah. Oh, wipeout. Yeah, so this is by Porch Brewing Company in California. It's very, uh, very, very American, and it's made its way all the way here to the UK. Always has the, It's always interesting to see that uh, these cans have, like, you know, some uh, logo on the side saying that you'll get a cash refund if you go to some, uh, you know, some recycling center in California, and you, you know, you get ten cents in return. Uh, but anyway, this is uh, this is wipeout. It does taste uh, tastes quite nice. It doesn't taste like an IPA, I would say, actually. No. Uh, it, and it also doesn't taste 7%, which is another good thing. I mean, you can really... Uh, That's 7%? You, yeah, allegedly. Allegedly. Ah, it, it is too. It tastes taste a little it. more like a, um, like a lager to me, actually. Slightly more like a lager than an IP. I mean, it's still got the hops and everything, but it is quite, uh, quite lagery. Quite, uh, I guess the word would be, it's almost grassy. It's almost like uh, wheat. Like, you know, kind of, uh, you can really taste kind of green, kind of feel with it. But it's very nice, very smooth. Goes down pretty well. Yeah, it actually tastes think? a bit like a light beer, almost, to mm. me. But it's got a bit of an after, like the, the aftertaste to it. It's weird. It's you're right. It's got it's definitely got a lager taste to it. As you know, once you drink it, it goes down. And you just kind of sit there for a moment. It's got a bit of that lager taste to it. I think so. You're right. It's, it's weird. While it is, it says it's an India Pale Ale. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily taste like that. Which I think this would be a pretty nice one if you were heading down to the beach. And you had a little esky, and you wanted to chuck in a you know six pack or whatever. This would be a pretty good one for a summer day. But I feel that like this would be really, really good, super, super, super chilled. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I with that. think yeah. if this even starts to get a, a just the slightest tinge of warmness about it, it's gonna suck. But if this is really, really cold, I think this is gonna be a cracking little drink on a sunny day. But I think that's kind of, that's about the only time I think I'd wanna drink it, at least at this point. I've got, a, I've got a, most of a pint to go, so we'll see how we go. Yeah, I think if somebody, if somebody actually gave me that to drink uh, and then told me afterwards it was a 7% IPA, I'd probably think they were uh, pulling my leg, actually. 
Uh, but no, it's, I mean, it's good. I think it's good enough. If you keep it nice and cold, as, as you say, I think it's uh, yeah, pretty refreshing, uh, all things considered. Yeah, I don't know if you'd call it a session beer. Um, no, you're right. It's over four percent. But yeah, yeah. When you talk about how you're throwing a, six of them into a, six of them in to go to the beach or something, I think maybe. Well, if yeah, if you don't drink too much, maybe having six of these would probably, if it is actually seven percent, probably uh, maybe uh, incapacitate. Uh, you'd be reasonably the, jolly by the end of it, I think. Yes, reason, reasonably, probably very laid back as well. Probably in the reclining position, I, I would say. Well, it is. So as you said, it's, it's from uh, California, is it? Mm. And um, on the actual can, there is a picture of a dude coming off his surfboard. So it's definitely got a particular vibe about it, I think. So maybe, yeah. maybe, oh, yeah, the, maybe the very intention was to, to, to be that beer that you have uh, at a beach or you know, while you're going for a surf. Or while, well, while you're probably not while you're actually surfing. <laughs> yeah, you know you said uh, what was it? Little creatures was the yeah. uh, was that was that brewery you mentioned? Yeah, I remember actually buying a couple of those at a uh, at a my favorite bar in Aberdeen actually, right. and uh, I remember it. I remember it cost of I remember the cost of fortune and the uh, and the the you know the the reasoning why was oh well they they, they come from uh, you know a long way away abroad. And that, and that was the reason why. I don't actually remember which ones I actually had, though, uh, which is, uh, but I was probably uh, quite a few beers down by that point. Well, so now they do all kinds of different beer, and they, they do, they range from being quite tropical and, and fruity to, um, you know, uh, being not so tropical and fruity. I mean, I don't know. They, they, I don't, I haven't checked in with them for a while. I haven't had one for quite some time, but they were really kicked off um, the whole boutique beer trend. And you know what? They're, so the, the value of that company as well. Um, you know, if you'd have if you'd have been an early investor in Little Creatures, you would have absolutely made a killing long term on those. And so, I guess that's probably the other thing, right? Is that when you think about some of these uh, some of these big sort of trends like boutique beers and things like that, you kind of you know you you where we are now. And as I said, we jump on a ghost whale and we look at all the different kind of beer varieties on there. And oh God, there were what fifteen pages or something of of different beers that you could choose from. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a, that, that's quite an indication of how ind- industry changes and shifts, you know, how rapid it is as well. Yeah. And how rapid. And, and so you look at companies like, like Brewdog as well over here, obviously the, the Scottish company Brewdog and how, how fast and how big they've grown um, from effectively nothing over the last few years as well. And, you know, there are lots of opportunities when you see something like this taking place and, you know, most people will sort of look at, at this and go, oh, you know, there's so many different boutiques, big uh, beers out there or whatever these days. And th- those that are sort of switched onto these trends before they happen kind of get into that picture earlier. And so we were talking as well about uh, Robin Hood and the rise of, you know, these, you know, fintech disrupt- disruptors with, uh, you know, free brokerage accounts and things like that. You know, people can invest in those opportunities as well. Uh, I know free trade, you know, they did a, a funding round years ago. So, so did Brewdog, right? So Brewdog and, and uh, free trade, both crowdfund equity so that anybody can, and particularly, you know, they're, they're really big on their, their users and customers and, and fan base investing in the company. So they're not publicly traded stocks, but there's still opportunities at certain, you know, given times to actually invest in these sorts of things. So I think as well, what people need to realize is that when you 
when you find something that you like, you know, maybe it's beer or maybe it's gambling or, you know, maybe it's um, uh, whatever it might be, investing in stocks, all those sorts of things. There, you've got to also take a step back and look at it and think, well, is there a way that I can get involved in this? Because I always found that as an investor, one of the best ways of investing is to invest in things that you use and that you know inside out. Because when you get a great understanding of a business or of an industry, it gives you a much better and broader picture of what the potential is in that. And if you then can find opportunities or companies within those, then, you know, that opens up a quite a world of opportunity for you long-term. So I think yeah. we should also encourage the, the people that as said, hopefully listen to us today um, is that, you know, look at the things in your life that you enjoy and that you like uh, that you use regularly that, you know, other people use, and then maybe, you know, consider is there ways that you can get involved in that? Uh, and, and use that in a bigger, longer-term wealth, you know, building strategy because you know there's there's so much out there for people now. And as I said, in in a, in a hyper-connected world where where technology is so makes things so accessible, there are a lot a lot more ways, like through you know Cedars and uh, CrowdCube to get uh, involved in crowdfunding opportunities and things like that, as well as the public markets. Yeah, I think the, uh, I, and I say this as a, you know, I actually own shares in BrewDog, but uh, I was actually, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was given them a, as a gift, actually. And the, uh, the BrewDog phenomenon um, is a very interesting one. And it's very, it, you know, it's obviously been a, a very broad success. But the question is whether for the shareholders who they encouraged, you know, to buy equity in, in the company, whether or not it ultimately will be. For them, because you know, for uh, you know, if you're buying shares in BrewDog through their you know uh, equity for funks uh, program and that, you're effectively just buying private equity. So the company is dictating how valuable it is. Indeed, uh, you know, yeah. it's marking its own homework and saying we will be there. And the reason they're doing this is because you know they want lots of money upfront now, with the hope to you know maybe create creating that growth and value later on in the future. Uh, now, personally, you know, I'm uh, I'm a shareholder in, in BrewDog. I'm not. I, I don't believe that the uh, you know the value of the shares that they were um, sold to me at were reflective of you know what the what the company is and what it will be worth on a fundamental basis. Maybe with some speculative fervor, as we've already discussed. You know, maybe they maybe it will uh, reach that and supersede that if they were ever to go public. But it seems quite unlikely to me that they would, considering they've managed to raise so much capital. Uh, without requiring, without without publicly listing and going under all of the uh, you know all the scrutiny and all the costs that that involves, we're interested to see what happens to Brewdog. But uh, while you know, I don't think the value I have in the shares is worth you know is 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 worth uh, what share I own effectively in the company. I mean, to me, the the main value of having Brewdog shares is you get to go to their uh, their annual AGM, which uh, <laughs> is the best is the best beer festival I think in the in the UK that you can really go to. Um, <laughs> like Oktoberfest in the UK, but but beer fest kind of thing. Yeah, I mean it's uh, I mean so I'm not actually a big fan of Brewdog beer in general. I mean they've they've done a few that are interesting, but in terms of their uh, but if you go to their their AGM, uh, they bring in all of the other small breweries to then go and sell uh, you know on tap, and it, so you can actually go to the Brewdog AGM and not drink a sip of Brewdog beer. 
Uh, but they do some great ones. It was uh, actually at the last one, sadly, this, this year's was cancelled, of course. Uh, but the, the, the year previous, I had a 27% uh, IPA, which was, uh, which was quite something. I was, um, was it called Rocket Fuel? Uh, no, I don't believe this one was. <laughs> but it, was, uh, it probably tasted similar. Yeah, that's, that's pretty potent. I, I don't think I've had that high uh, um, alcoholic content beer before. I think the highest I went was like 15%. That was oh, don't worry. I, if, if, if we carry on doing this, we Sam, may get there. No doubt that we will be able to break that limit for you. No doubt at all. If we what do, do you- that, that might be a single beer podcast, that one. <laughs> Yeah, I think we'd probably just have to, uh, to, to sip it intermittently. It was weird. It, it, that one actually tasted, tasted really Belgian for some reason. Um, yeah, so it that's, it's, it's weird that the, the strong ones always do taste Belgian. I think the Belgians have got to think for really <laughs> strong beers. Because that, that was the strong one that I had. It was, I think it was a, 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 one of the Belgian beers. I can't remember if it was Aflachem or something like that. But it was, a tr- it was one of the triples, you know? Right, yeah. They, kind of, they kind of make it obvious for you. It's like they have the name and then they have the double and then they have the triple. And, it's like, and they've well, got the quadruple as well. If you if you want to yeah, really, close I, I, I haven't been down that pathway yet for for that reason. All in good time. How much of it tastes like beer, and how much of it actually just tastes like alcohol? Um, <laughs> it's, I was like, I might as well just unscrew the hand sanitizer in the kitchen and just drink that straight. Yeah, so there'll probably be plenty of that going around, considering the amount of production that must have been made. Uh, well, that's right. So I was just going to say, all the, like all the all the brewing companies during lockdown are just sort of like, well, we're not really going to make beer because. You know the pubs aren't buying it. So let's make hand sanitizer instead. Yeah, we've got yeah. a crap load of uh, we've got a crap load of alcohol ready to to brew up. So let's just turn it into sixty percent hand sanitizer. Yeah, it's uh, it seems apparently. You know, I, I have a friend who works in a distillery. But he tells me that it's really very simple if you have the equipment for making, uh, you know, for for making whiskey at least, uh, and and likely uh, for for other alcoholic beverages. It's really quite simple to just mass produce hand sanitizer. It makes funny, sense, I suppose. Right? Yeah, and it, 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 so there was a stock in Australia that manufactured, like the the whole thing before all the lockdown, and everything was um, uh, like low GI foods. So they were making like low GI rice and like low GI noodles to release to the mass market, um, right. and uh, then lockdown hit, and they they just like oh we've got the capacity, we're going to make hand sanitizer, and the stock took off. Absolutely skyrocketed. Really? Yeah, just off the back of them saying, you know, we're going to make hand sanitizer because there was a shortage uh, in Australia at the time. So Australia was kind of the pioneers of the going mental over hoarding toilet paper uh, craze. They they really were pioneers in that sense of right, literally fighting in the aisles to hoard toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Um, actually, probably paid off. You know, still only like a hundred and three deaths in Australia during this whole period. So yeah, right. maybe there's something in that. But anyway, so uh, Holistic Coltec, they just decided to make hand sanitizer and went bonkers. So, you know, maybe that, you know, there's, there's things when these sorts of crises hit and all of a sudden a company decides that they're going to do something completely different um, because they can in order to you know, help out with, with said uh, global crisis. You know, there's there's opportunities there, as we've seen yeah. a lot of those. You know, stocks that have been looking at developing COVID vaccines and all that sort of thing as well. Oh yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that uh, uh, that company in Japan that was uh, very early on mm. with uh, with the Wu flu that was manu- their main uh, you know uh, product was masks, surgical masks. Yeah, and it just absolutely uh, parabolic. Was that the same one that went bonkers during the Ebola breakout in 2014? 
Ah, I... So don't, have they seen this don't twice? think so, but it could be. Yeah, yeah I, I'm sure there was one in 2014 when Ebola... You know, do you remember the, the Ebola stocks? You know, the, the, the big Ebola yep. stocks that were just... They were making PPE equipment uh, and they just went bonkers. You know, these hazmat suits and stuff. Pretty sure one of those did the exact same thing during this pandemic. And so you've got to think that, well, we it's pretty fair to say that there's going to be another pandemic in our lifetime, probably several, because we do, yeah, a, we do like tend me. to see them reasonably regularly, whether it was this one or was it H1N1 in 2009. Obviously, then sort of Ebola was never really a pandemic, uh, but Ebola in 2014. Sort of along the line, there are these, these companies uh, all seem to do pretty well, at least initially. They all come crashing back down eventually when the pandemic or the epidemic dies down. But, um, you know, there's something in pandemic stocks, I think. So long as you get a bit of a guide and a gauge as to when these pandemics really kick off, that, you know, there's an opportunity there as well. Yeah, I guess that's the, uh, I guess that's the tricky side to it. It's about like every uh, 10 years. It's like, uh, it's like market crashes. Pandemics and market crashes just come about every 10 years. Yeah, or at least they have, uh, have recently. I suppose with the amount of, uh, you know, I wonder... Is, the um, you know so much of the risk of a pandemic is uh, driven by simply how much everybody travels. You know that's part of the the whole way in which it can spread so fast and so rapidly is just the degree of you know global travel that's been uh, that we've had and how cheap it is to fly or how cheap it was to fly at least um, over in the last few decades. I wonder if there's um, you know there's with the with the cold second cold war effectively between the US and China and you've got yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of you know it's now looking like um you know with the, there's all manner of talk over chinese students within the US uh, within you know the what what universities they go to with, as to um you know I, I in fact i even re- recall a news story from a few weeks ago where i had um you know, major CCP officials who were uh, calling their students, uh, well, their, their children who are students in the US back home to China. It makes me think if there's going to be, if the- Sorry, the did you say of, students or spies? I just want to clear that up. Oh yeah, well, you see, they have a great thing in China called civil military fusion, where there, there isn't actually much of a distinction between public, public and private sector. And, uh, and as a result, well, they could be, they could be one at one or the other. <laughs> but um, yeah, it makes me wonder if, with if if global travel peaks or has peaked already, whether or not the risk of a pandemic is somehow reduced when you have simply reduced travel between different countries. What do you think? You'd have to think so. I mean, no one's traveling at the moment. Like, yeah, no one. I, I, there are some flights, but. I, I, uh, a colleague of ours, Dan Denning, I remember he, he flew back from Australia to the US and he, uh, he, he showed, you know, a little snapshot of the airports and they were empty. There's just no one, no one flying. Yeah. And um, it, yeah, that's absolutely going to, you know, reduce the spread of a virus or reduce the spread of anything really. But like airlines, do you know what I hope out of this actually? And whether or not it actually comes to fruition or not, I don't know. But every, so I, I, I fly, well, before this, I flew a lot, um, obviously going back to Australia um, pretty regularly. And it's a, it's a big bloody trip. It's like 16,000 kilometers. I don't know what that is in miles, but it's a lot. 
Uh, and you do that a couple of times a year, plus to Europe, to the States and whatever. And an aeroplane is just a flying bus. There's, there's no two ways about it. It's literally like sitting next to people. In fact, it's worse than a bus because you're sitting usually next to two other people as like one other person. And yeah, it's a bit bigger, but it's just a giant Petri dish of farts and germs and disgusting yeah, yeah. hygiene. So, you know, when, when pandemics kicked off, it was always going to be about where people were traveling to and how many of them were traveling there. And I would hope that there's some sort of mass redesign of how we actually travel out the back of this. I don't think people are just going to stop traveling around the world. I think we might, we might talk about sort of what's happened uh, with lockdown and with the economic ramifications of that in, in next week's podcast or, or subsequent podcasts. But um, I think that the airline industry was probably in need of a giant shakeup, a big slap to the face, a big, big, big ass wake up call. That the way that they were operating, uh, the way that they were treating passengers pre-flight, on the flight, and even post-flight was just pretty crap. And and maybe this changes it. Maybe this is the big catalyst for the airline industry that they needed to be more effective, more efficient, more cost efficient. Uh, more uh, gracious and considerate towards how passengers travel and how they transit. And maybe, well, I mean, maybe the industry comes out of this better. Well, I mean, key to that is do the changes that you propose require more money because they're obviously, uh, you know, awfully short of that and awfully short of credit as well. Well, I think it opens up probably opportunities for new entrants. So the airline industry itself is a reasonably hard uh industry to crack into because of the massive costs yeah very of, of, of you know running an airplane they are not cheap but then at the same time you've also got to consider the development and technologies about uh lightweighting materials so things like carbon fiber composites aluminium alloys uh the use of those in the construction of airplanes that makes them lighter but more structurally uh, rigid and stronger and at the same time even the electrification of uh, engines and that sort of technology so that you can effectively run them a lot cheaper uh, than you would today. I mean, I, I think I saw just in the last couple of weeks, the first, um, the first fully electric uh, 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 plane travel. It was, it was sort of like a, it was like a mid-size, it was like a bigger Cessna kind of thing. It was a, it was a turboprop plane. But it was fully electrified, and it, it yep, very, I saw very it too. safely, very safely took off and landed on its, on its route. You know, I think that's something that no one's really talking about right now is the electrification in the airline industry as well. That will make a massive difference. Oh um, yeah, I mean, I've I've been looking at that for a while, but uh, similarly, I agree. There is not there is not much that's been. Everyone really does look to the electric vehicles, and they're mm. always you know, they're not even looking at trucking. They're not looking at trains. Yeah. They're just looking at private. You know, private, um, you know, privately held, just almost leisure vehicles when it comes to things like Tesla, because they're not cheap either. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the uh, the electrification of the uh, of of flight does seem very. There've been loads of stories. They're very. They're always small ones in terms of what they're actually doing. It's always small flights uh, from you know small small airstrips, uh, and they're often yeah. And they're as you say, they're just. Uh, they're just turboprop planes, so they're just propeller planes, so they can't go hugely fast. 
Um, but it is very interesting to see that. Um, there was uh, actually, you know, Boeing, I believe, uh, before before a lot of this hit, they, they made a very interesting um, sort of test, well, like a prototype uh, plane, which looked almost like a Spitfire uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the, its, its design, had, though it had slightly swept back wings. Uh, but it, it really evoked the sort of the traditional sort of Spitfire image. And it was an electrically, um, electrically driven plane. The issue is, as is with so much of the electrics vehicle side, is the you know the actual uh, you know the actual distance that it can go, the actual you know battery yeah. capacity, and it becomes an issue of the amount of current that you know is safe to actually you know uh, continually use in something that requires so much energy, and the amount of energy it can actually carry. Yeah, um, I think. You, um, yeah, do you think it's going to be like big developments when it comes to that? Uh, yeah, in, look, I, I, I think. I think the first steps are going to be so a lot of people don't realize how big the small aircraft uh, business travel style industry is. So, you know, there's a lot of airline travel that isn't EasyJet or um, Ryanair or BA um, or, you know, Qantas or, you know, these major airlines that travel around the world. There's so much other flight taking place. Um, with smaller aircraft and that's where it's really going to make a massive difference so that you'll find that um, I think I think the really big development will be that businesses won't necessarily spend as much on major commercial airline business travel but will actually then start to use private um, commercial airlines sort of smaller business airline travel because the cost of those won't be as prohibitive when the aircraft that they use um, effectively become cheaper to run is they can become much more cost effective in offering seats on those aircraft. And so we've also seen that with a fair few um, startups and, and companies coming to market in probably the last five years around, um, you know, sharing uh, seats on private planes um, and effectively almost having like a, a subscription service to private planes I know NetJets is one of the you know big operators in that space. You see a lot of sports people uh, and a lot of athletes using those because you know, like golfers, for instance, that are constantly traveling around the world, but they don't want to own a plane. They also don't want to fly commercial, so they use something like NetJets, where within a 24-hour or 48-hour period, they can call them up and say, "I need to fly from A to B. Be ready for me." And it's like I don't know, 200 and something thousand a year or whatever, right? Still crazy money, but if you're you know, a BHP or a Rio and you're flying executives, you know, maybe around the world, maybe that all of a sudden when you're running electric air uh, aircraft becomes a far more viable option than, than the amount of ticket, um, you know, ticket costs that you'd have to pay for those on commercial airlines, as well as all the, you know, three hours beforehand going through security, which now you're going to have to get a laser gun to the head to see if you've got a temperature. Yeah. all that sort of nonsense. So I think that's where it's going to hit first. Yeah, I, do, I think we have uh, we have reached the end of our of our second beer wipeout. How would uh, Sam? How would you rate this on using our triple B to triple A system? So for me, um, it it was pretty easy to drink. I, again, I don't I didn't really taste as much as the pale ale as I'd, I'd sort of had before. Um, it was a bit of a eh kind of beer. So yeah, it's like, nah, I could drink it if someone put it in front of me, but if I was in the in the bottle um and I was looking for something to drink, because I was like, yeah, I want something that tastes really good that I enjoy, 
I'd probably just gloss over it. So uh, if I can get our rating system right, triple B at the top, I think I'd actually probably just give this a single A. Ah, yeah. It's a, uh, I'm not that impressed by it. Yeah, I, I was more impressed by it at the beginning than I was at the end. By yes. the end, yes. that's sort of, a, sort of a rasping aftertaste to it. Mm. It, was kind of, it, was almost, it was almost sour. Uh, yes, it wasn't quite absolutely. so. Yeah, wasn't quite so pleasant to drink. So I think in my uh, using our rating system, I would probably give it. I, I in fact, I'd probably agree with you. I think I'd probably give it a single A. I think a single okay. A would be uh, would be my uh, my verdict for Wipeouts by Port Brewing Company, which uh, which I guess leads us on to our uh, our next and final beer. Which yeah, is. I mean, so we we would sort of originally planned for these podcasts to go for about an hour, but at, uh, we're drinking these. Most of these cans are like four hundred and forty mil. So, in between us gas bagging on uh, and actually drinking of the beer, we're probably going to go well over that. But we thought we'd at least try and get through three per podcast. We after after we reconvene, we we may reconsider that. But especially <laughs> especially if you're talking about a twenty five percenter in there somewhere. Um, yeah, quite, quite. On and, and hopefully we're entertaining enough and, and bringing up enough uh, enough topics for, for people that are listening to keep listening to us. Um, but let's crack the next one and we'll we'll have a look. Um, I, I'm before I do open this, I'm I'm very curious about something here, Boaz. Is that on the label, as you said, it's called "In My High Wire Days," but it says "Single Malt English Pale." Now, yeah, indeed. I may be somewhat naive to the beer brewing industry, but I don't understand how single malt works in the beer context as opposed to the uh, whiskey context. Uh, and nor, my dear Sam, uh, do I, I'm afraid. In terms of uh, the why they've gone for single malt in this beer, uh, I don't do you, actually know. I've not had this before. That's, do you uh, feel one, like one... this is a bit of a session ale style thing? as though it's a bit more of a marketing spiel than actually anything to do with the brewing process. I mean, hopefully somebody from the, is it the Wylam Brewing Company? Indeed, it's from Wylam Brewery in uh, uh, Newcastle. I am, I'm happy for someone from Wylam to uh, correct me, to, to educate me on why it's called a single malt English pale ale. I want to learn more as we go through these beers, um, but I don't, I don't understand it in the context of beer, but hopefully it tastes delightful and we'll find out in a minute, I guess. Yeah. So this is In My High Wire Days by Wylam Brewing Company, which is in Newcastle upon Tyne, brewed and canned in the UK. Oh, it's good to say it's a go. Off, off the bat, without even drinking it yet, but looking at it, it's got a almost a yellowy glow about it. It, it, it reminds me a bit of uh, Hoogarden. Um, so my first uh, thought is to chuck a slice of lime in there or lemon, no. lemon perhaps, or exactly. even, I go you, I'll go you one better. Cut a circular slice of orange and drop that into a beer. Um, but you know, I may be well off here, but I'm, I'm going to, I'll see. Drinking by color is a, uh, an interesting, an interesting strategy. I'd be, uh, be curious to hear if it uh, led to positive outcomes. You know, on the on the on the first taste, um, it 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 has got the same sort of taste that I would expect from like a Hoogarden. and I think I'm not far off. To be fair, chucking a chucking a slice of lemon or orange in that, I think would probably actually make it even better. 
It does fit, taste very much like a summer beer. This is something to be had outside. It's very, uh, yeah, you know, very. It's all, it's almost like a um, like a wheat beer, almost like a you know, yeah, strong wheat beer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so we've we as we've worked our way down the ABV content, and this is just a four point one percent alcohol beer. So this you could even throw into that wonderful category we call session beers. Indeed, yeah, four point one. Anything under five percent is uh, appears to be a uh, appears to be a sessionable beer. It's very interesting to see because um, my understanding is it's same with imperial stouts, where uh, an imperial uh, to, for it to be an imperial stout rather than simply a stout, it needs to be effectively double the percentage, and so it should be eight uh, percent effectively. However, this is used. This is a very sort of flexible definition as to what an imperial stout is. So uh, you'll get ones that are 6% or more than 6% that are so-called um, uh, imperial stouts. And similar with IPAs, where it goes from a session IPA to a double IPA, but it's not actually 8%. So it's not actually doubled. It's, um, and instead, it's something like 6%. And then you get, uh, I, I've, you know, there are very few triple IPAs I've found that are actually over 10%, where if, they, you know, if they're actually triple what they are, well, maybe, you know, it should be 12, really. Um, but I, I, I imagine there's quite a lot of flexibility with uh, how you describe these beers when you want to market them, right? Yeah, I think that's probably half of the, half of the battle is just trying to stand out from the crowd. So like we said before, if you're, if you're on, a, on a shelf uh, in a bottle shop and you want someone to buy your beer, you've got to be, you've got to be different. And so obviously the labeling and how the things are labeled are, are important these days. Um, but you've also got to use, I guess, some language that, that sets you out. I mean, to be fair, all of these beers. So we, we started with a gentle nod to welcome visitors of the modern barley wine uh, and then wipe out. And then in my high wire days, if I had to judge them all solely on the name of the beer, in my high wire days, it's got to it just jumps out at you because you're like, what has that got to do with a beer at all? And then to add, just as icing on the cake, single malt English pale. I'm like, oh, oh, this is going to be like a fine whiskey. Give me some of that. Give me Except English. Heck, give me twelve. <laughs> I um, think the uh, I think the the name in my high wire days does apply very well, however, to the investing side when we're thinking about it, where, so the, the illustration on the label, uh, I am a sucker for a good label on a beer, especially <laughs> when it comes to, as I, I'm always trying to find new beers, and there's, there's always so many more, but a decent label, well, I'm always going to be suckered into trying one. But in my high wire days, has a fella uh, going between, uh, uh, it looks like two skyscrapers, uh, you know, holding the, uh, the balancing pole and walk, wandering across with a, uh, a very sort of pale, peach skyline with some uh, with some mountains some birds going by is that, is that the fella that uh that documentary was uh was done yeah, the french guy I yeah believe. do you reckon I that's his name. yeah i imagine it's modeled off him it's got like clouds below him and everything so and i think big, it's a uh, big v kind of long sleeve t-shirt uh going there as well yeah yeah looks uh Looks like Looks French attire, I would Definitely say. Looks like they used actually a photo of. So it's probably actually a photo of the guy that is actually being used in the label. Could be. But um, in terms of uh, in my high wire days, I mean, I think it. I think you can apply this pretty well to the uh, investing world when you've got 
So earlier in this conversation, you said, you know, in March, when we got this massive sell-off, yeah. there were so many stocks that it was like, you know, you've got to buy. Like there is so much there. Yeah, these things are going at discounts. If you're a long-term investor, this is going to be a big opportunity. So I actually, I, I come from a, a slightly more cautious or maybe slightly more pessimistic side where, well, it went down a lot in March, but in terms of how much just, you know, the degree to which uh, the, the stock market has been or the U.S. stock market, which of course we use as sort of a, a basis for almost everywhere else in the developed world, <laughs> you know, it's a, um, you know, the amount it had gone down relative to the amount it had been inflated uh, was uh, not, not all that much. You know? I start, you know, I'm still sort of on the fence with whether or not you know, we've really off the lows and, you know, for, for, you know, for, for the time yep. to come, or whether or not we'll retest them uh, later on this year. Because uh, the degree to which if you, so if, uh, you know, just, uh, if, you, if you're listening to this, my general sort of, um, my general view on what the lowering of interest rates does for the investing world is if you lower the cost of interest, then the, the value of future cash flows uh, simply increases. So if there, if there is income that can be earned in the future, well, it's worth an awful lot more if uh, a central bank has lowered the rate of interest and uh, the commercial banking system is, is lowering its interest rates as well. So if you can earn money in any way in the future, that is made more valuable by the lowering of the interest rate. So as a result of that, uh, you know, the, and as we've seen all the way through the developed world and through you know, even the emerging world as well, when you look at their, their rates, the lowering of interest rates across the board has made the value of future cash flows more valuable. And, and that is reflected in the stock market. So future cash, future income has become much, much, much more valuable. And the degree to which that has occurred, I think, you know, in March, the sell-off to me wasn't the most, you know, this wasn't the most awful, you know, brutal sell-off that, you know, we had even in 2008. You know, it was not, not so, um, it was not so extreme. So it made me feel, well, maybe there's an even worse one that's going to come. Maybe, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Uh, maybe we've yet to see that. But I was thinking, you know, it, may, it reminds me of in my high wire days because to be an investor now and to buy stocks yeah. now are in this period yeah. of uh, some form of financial repression, effectively, with this uh, interest rate control, that if you are an investor, you are on some kind of a high wire because you are relying on all of these policies that have been created and instated by central banks to remain and to, to keep everything going, you know, to keep all of the all of the balls in the air to be able to keep all of the plates spinning and for nothing serious to go wrong while they're going on. And so that's why uh, I think uh, it uh, in my high wire day sort of, uh, I think pretty much every investor, especially if you're a passive investor as well, is something is, is an experience that they are, uh, that they're embarked upon. Yeah. You know what? I'll tell you what, I think if you're a passive investor today in this kind of market, you're screwed because yeah, I think this is just the kind of market for active investing because there are there are companies out there. And so give you an example. So on the uh, London Stock Exchange, there's well in excess of 2,000 listed public companies. Uh, same on the Australian Stock Exchange, well in excess of 2,000 listed companies. Uh, I'm not exactly sure the numbers in the US and the UK, but I know the, I think it's the World Society of Stock Markets or whatever the big union is or whatever. There's something like 45,000 listed companies on the major stock markets 
in the world. So, you know, UK, uh, US, uh, you know, different parts of Asia, Europe, uh, Australia, and, and, and other sort of related stock markets. So you've got, you know, that, that might not sound like a lot, but at the same time, you know, about 45,000 different investment opportunities. So when you get these sorts of events, uh, and so 2008, 2009 was a little bit different uh, in the sense that it was kind of sparked by the financial system. And this one was sparked by what appears to be a, a health. Well, the government's crisis. response to it. The government's response is something else. No, but, physical lockdown, yeah. And yeah, physical lockdown. And that obviously affects industry. But then when you sort of look beyond that, and realize that every crisis there, you know, we've, we've always recovered from every crisis. There's never been a period in history where we have suffered a great recession, a great depression, a war, a pandemic, and not continued on beyond that. Now, that doesn't mean that everything continues on. Companies fail all the time. Industries struggle and initial hype comes in and comes out of those all the time. But at the same time, great companies doing great things will continue to do and deliver great results in all kinds of markets. And so I take a very, very more optimistic approach to things, which is why I quite enjoy our little conversations because we kind of come from different angles towards it, but always oh, definitely, yeah. find a similar sort of, a meeting ground at some point, but I'm of the view that it, it doesn't, you can almost be um, capital agnostic when you look at some of the companies that reduced in stock price so much in, in March and historically have been profit making, have, you know, tapped into an industry or a market where there's been plenty of users, plenty of money coming through, plenty of revenues, plenty of profits to get. And to think that they're not at some point going to return to that position is naive. If you, if you know the industry well, if you know the company well, if you know how progress continues on through and beyond crisis, you can all, as I say, you can be capital agnostic in the sense that it doesn't really matter what your entry point becomes into some of these stocks. When you understand that, the historical yields and the profits that are available on the table for some of these companies historically to think that they won't return to those. Of course, there's a risk reward balance in that they may not go back to delivering those sorts of dividends, but the, the value, when you look at some of these companies on an individual basis, and I literally mean trawling through, I trawl through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not well, I, every year, I trawl through basically thousands of stocks, but that means you've got to be committed. And if you're active enough and you can find companies uh, that during those sorts of crisis periods, those sorts of yields that, you know, the anticipation and the forward view is that they will return to those. You're looking at sort of double digit yields at some of the values they were trading at in mid-March. So when I say capital agnostic, it means it doesn't really matter what your entry point is, is that the payoff long-term, if you've got a long-term horizon for some of those companies on the yields that they can, can possibly deliver again, uh, means that it pays you back regardless. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I agree with um, I. I agree that with your sort of general broader view that you know uh, civilization is not simply going to go into decline. You know, we're not going to simply you know 
you know, the human civilization as we know is not simply going to to uh, to stop or just simply um, you know die. There's not, uh, but I don't, at the same time, I don't think it's so connected to the stock market. So I think with, um, I, I think the idea that stocks could, uh, you know, these great companies as you described, there are uh, you know plenty of them out there. They do uh, they create great products and do uh, great services for their for their clients and for their customers. For me, it is simply the idea that the stock price, as it is, needs to be reflective of that. So the idea that, um, so for example, you have there are there are eras where, you know, while uh, human civilization has still expanded, while we've still seen technological development, they've still been very poor for those who have been invested in stocks. So, for example, in the 1970s. Uh, was uh, not a very good time to be uh, uh, an investor in the stock market. Um, however, you know, at that time there was still there was still expansion. You know, there was still uh, the the uh, advancement of technology and the like. It's just the the price of a stock, even if the uh, it, it can be very very you know the price of a stock can be very very low, despite a company uh, doing very very well. You know, it can be, and which is the entire uh, sort of uh, premise of the value investor is to try and find these stocks which are doing well, and yet the you know the, the stocks are incredibly cheap. Mm. So I think the idea that while you can, there are plenty of companies out there that do a great service, and while they you know they can be pioneering the world, the stock price does not need to follow that. And I think what the stock prices do follow is uh, similar to what I've been saying, that, that future sort of cash flow anticipation based on the current interest rate. Uh, and so, you know, I think we have a, we obviously have a, a difference of opinion as to, you know, where, how long, uh, you know, current trends can persevere. But I think we both have that same interest in those great companies, which goes back to what we were, we were speaking about earlier with, if you know an industry really, really well, and you can find a way of investing in it, and you, you know well enough that you think you have an edge in it, then uh, you know you can you can create some some serious alpha to use the uh, to use the <laughs> Greek the Greek term again. Yeah, the words that I still don't completely understand. But anyway, that's 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 not the point. Hey, hey, comes that comes back to the point that you know not all sophisticated investors are smart either, right? Um, <laughs> and well, there's a difference of opinion that makes a market, right? Yeah, well, that's right. Do you know what I think? I was I just had a quick sticky break at uh, the US markets as we're recording this. Uh, so it's Friday afternoon, we're recording this. Um, and I, I'm gonna I don't know if you're looking at it, but I, I don't want you to look at any any markets right now. And I don't know okay. if you know the answer to this question or not. But right now, I want you to have a guess at the stock price direction in percentage change up or down of Hertz global holdings today. Uh, over yeah, so beginning when this more like at the For, opening at the open to right now as we record this at the opening to right now hmm that is good and we are on UK time of course we're on so UK time does does skew things so I guess it's pretty early for the US Open yeah um, so Hertz did get uh, something of a beating I understand over yeah. uh, I think yesterday. How well is it doing today? So it's about it's half past twelve uh, for the for the market for the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Hmm. So so far today, how how well? Up has or it down? Gone? Up or down? Let's start with up or down. Up or down? Yeah, yeah. I I, I will say I I will say down. I'll say. Down. Uh, okay, you're incorrect. Uh, so now we'll let's, we'll start with the percentage figure of how much it's up today. Ah, in tens. In have tens a, of. Percentage. Have a crack at it. Uh, give me multiple choice. Uh, 
it's either 10%, 30%, or 50%. Uh, I'll go for, let's see, I'll say, I'll say 50. Uh, Hertz Global Holdings today is up 37% at the time of me looking at it, which has gone to 34, which has gone to 37, which has gone to 35, and so on and so on. So I think that probably gives a good indication of just how bonkers the markets are going. That a yeah. bankrupt company is a bankrupt still company, up 34%. That. If I'm wrong, like correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand they were actually in talks to issue one billion dollars of new shares uh, uh, as a, uh, in the uh, yeah it, over the last twenty four hours. So you know, they they are bankrupt, but everyone was wondering whether or not they were going to uh, you know if if you're already bankrupt and the stocks are going up a lot, why not just sell the investors you know play you know huge amounts more shares and uh, you'll be able to get you it yourself. As, as I said, if you're an active investor and you're day trading and you've got the wherewithal to do it, to do it well, you know, this is a great market because shit, you can make 35% on Hertz in a day or in a day, in a morning session. So if you're passive, I, I, and I've always been a, a, not a fan of passive investing. Active investing is the way to go. That's the way to build a portfolio, minimal capital risk, long-term view, right companies, you can do pretty well, but you know, that, that sums it up perfectly, I think, of what's been happening in the last week. And I think we've probably banged on quite enough now. Quite, and we, quite. we are three beers uh, in. So we, let's give a final review, perhaps, of In My Highwire Days. We'll wrap it up for this week. And, uh, and then, then hopefully, if people actually, if more than one person decides to listen to <laughs> this, they will come back next week, tell their friends about it, follow us at... Uh, Beers, booms. So beers. I even got our Twitter handle wrong again. Booze, booms, and busts. And uh, and then hopefully we build a bit of a following. And as I said, reach out to us on Twitter and and, and ask us questions, maybe topics that you'd like us to talk about and cover. Stocks, stock ideas, um, uh, companies, industries. Uh, we both come at it from from very different angles. We both uh, got a lot of experience in the markets and companies and stocks. This is what we do for a living. But we figured that on a Friday uh, afternoon, the best thing to do would be to have several what appear to be very high alcohol content beers and get progressively more drunk as we talk about stocks and markets. So I don't know about you, Boaz, but I'm, 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 I'm flying right now. I've got a bit of a taste for it. If we weren't in lockdown, I'd probably kick down to the local and have several more. But let's let's give in my highway days a a rating because I I I, I quite like this. So I'll let you go yeah. this time. Yeah, I uh, in my highway days is actually uh, well. I say I mean I say actually I think it is uh, you know has a great label and it has, I think it has a really really great taste. It does taste um, you know I would actually say it tastes slightly more alcoholic than simply four uh, percent however it does taste very nice very smooth going down um i would say uh, i would rate this from our triple b being the highest you know to the triple uh, a being the lowest i would rate this i think i think i would rate this a a b plus a i would b rate this plus. a b plus uh, we're, we're going to allow for the b the, the pluses and the minuses here as some of the uh, standards and, and standard and pours and Moody's uh, do use in their uh, investment bond ratings. 
So I, I would rate this a B plus. Uh, very smooth. Uh, very. It's definitely one for uh, the summertime. Yes. Uh, if you were outside, you know, if yes. we were outside recording this, it would taste even better. I'm sure. Yes. Maybe I would even give it a better rating. But um, yeah, it does taste. Yeah, it tastes very good. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, look, I think I, I, I somewhat agree with you there is that, uh, you know, I look outside now and it's overcast and dreary and it's probably not the ideal time for a beer like this, but it has got that sort of uh, yellowy, cloudy look like a bit of a wit beer. Um, I think it would actually go quite well. I'm, I'm going to refine what I said before. I'm going to say a, a slice of orange in this, I think, would really kick it off. I, I'm tempted in my next order from uh, uh, Ghost Whale to get another one and try it with a slice of orange. And I think if it was well chilled with that slice, I think that would really, really make it absolutely perfect. And uh, even take my rating up a little higher. Um, I, I, I would give this, yeah, I think, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with you on this. I'm gonna go with a B, B plus in this sense. With the view that in the right conditions and with the right garnish, uh, it may even climb up to a double B or if you've had a couple of alcoholic beers before it, it may go to a triple B. Um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely a good one. Uh, nice one from the Wylam Brewery there in my high wire days. That's two of yeah. B plus rating. Yeah, I am. I am actually quite a fan of Wylam in general. They do make some. Uh, they do make some very good brews, uh, and uh, perhaps we'll have some more of these if we continue on with them. But uh, I think, uh, as you say, we have reached our uh, our time for today. Was it originally going to be sort of? Uh, yeah, we, we were sort of aiming. I think we said forty five minutes to start with. Yeah, yeah. Well, this time. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I think just sort of generally letting the uh, letting the podcast for as long as it, it feels uh, you know feels feel feels right is probably you know a, a better attitude. But anyway, yeah. we are and, here. We and are. If our re- if our listeners uh, think that we should go shorter, uh, again, reach out to us on Twitter at beers booms busts and uh, tell us that we suck and that we should go to forty five minutes, not a second more. Or, or maybe even that we should increase the alcohol percentage <laughs> in all of our beers going forward. That but, we should uh, have six and just see, and people just want to watch us progressively get more drunk and yell at each other about the markets. Or alternately, they could want us simply to uh, go for the for the alcohol, for, you know, alcohol free side, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, just have a much more sober conversation. But uh, no, you know, who I, knows? I we'll we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but that does conclude our uh, our pilot episode, you know, the the frontier episode of booze, booms, and busts. If you do have any, uh, if you do have any uh, suggestions as to what may what might make it better, what you like, what you don't like, uh, do feel free to uh, reach out to us over Twitter, as Sam says. Uh, and that is all for today. I hope you have a very good week to come. I hope you have a very good weekend, as it is a Friday, uh, and we shall hopefully see you next time.